0: i'm kim
1: i'm gabby
0: Uh, i'm doing the intro tonight because if you couldn't tell from poor gabby's voice she has consumption
1: i sound like i'm dying but we're gonna try to push through today
0: Push through today, partially because I'm the one who is spearheading this episode. Uh, For those of you who are new to our podcast, we cover all things spooky. We cover the paranormal. We cover true crime. We cover, well, we will be covering the occasional monster.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I'll be your monster for this episode (laughs) because that's what I sound like.
0: Tonight's monster is brought to you by Gabby. That's like a death metal voice. That's kind of (laughs) fun. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh God I just did the whole whole what are you holding metal hands
0: metal hands I don't know what uh, metal metal fans maybe you can maybe you can help us out uh, what is one holding when you make those like death metal hands what is is it
1: like it's the souls that they've consumed from I others with their tools. music
0: like if, if all the souls fit into your hands that's not that many
1: I'm just, <laughs> just like, and Kim and- has uh pooped on the party
0: (laughs) no i just take my soul collection a little more seriously apparently than the rest of you uh now we are starting a new feature this evening and it's very exciting
1: is it a creature feature
0: it's a ghosty
1: feature (laughs) it doesn't sound as cool but it actually does sound pretty cool
0: although you know i would be open if people have uh not just paranormal stories but bigfoot stories
1: oh those are the best
0: or like you know, champ or acapogo stories. I'd be totally game for all those things. Uh, no, we are starting a new feature. We talked a little bit about it at the end of the last episode about the bell, Witch, but we are starting a new feature where we're going to be sharing your stories. And we have our very first one tonight. And Gabby is going to, uh, tell you Gabby.
1: Yes. I'll attempt to do the reading and hopefully you can understand me. All right. So this is a story that was submitted by Jake Ghost Daddy Rice. And we've talked about him in the past. He's one of our collaborators on the podcast from time to time. And he has a website called Ghostly Activities. And he has published some stuff on there and actually recommended this story. Um, Jake does ghost hunting as well. That's how we know Jake is through our ghost hunting group. So this is a story that he sent over to us. This is a tale from my third or fourth ghost hunt in 2007. I received a request to investigate a haunting at an old farmhouse in Grant County, Wisconsin. The family wanted to sell their property and move away. What came next scared the hell out of me family friends had asked me to check out their farmhouse the owners a couple in their late 70s wanted to sell the land and move to madison they hesitated to sell it at first as it had been in their family since wisconsin became a state in 1848 it also had the family graveyard on the property mrs halverson in parentheses names have been changed to protect the identity of the people involved i like that
0: he did not say the innocent
1: (laughs) the innocent, uh, felt such a strong connection to the property. She really didn't want to leave. It was her family that first settled in the area, but her health had started to fail. She needed to be closer to modern health facilities in Madison, which was about an hour away. She explained that her grandparents and uncles were buried in the family plot just below a low hill where the house sat. She also thought her grandmother haunted their home. That's what she wanted to know. Was it really her grandmother, or was it her mind playing tricks on her? Her husband went along with the investigation. It made him very uncomfortable. He was a very devout man, and the talk of ghosts upset him. Mr. Halverson became tense when I spoke to him about the possibility of a spirit in the house. We set a date a few weeks out when I could run the investigation. It would be Saturday, October 13th, a sliver moon night. I began my investigation by logging the conditions like the temperature, humidity, and moon phase. Next, I laid out my equipment on a blanket. There was no wind and not much background noise. It was still. My investigation of a half-collapsed barn found nothing special other than a family of raccoons. Trash pandas. I love trash pandas. They're, They're the so cutest. so cute. I sat on the porch for about a half an hour to record EVP and tried to glimpse inside the house. Nothing. Then, I went by the family graveyard. The fence around the graves had rusted badly. It seemed it would crumble if touched. At this point, it was dusk and the sun was setting behind a bluff, creating an orange sherbet-colored sky. I was fumbling with a flashlight in my bag when I heard a rustling behind some of the moss-covered gravestones. Raccoons was my first thought, trash pandas, but I didn't see animals in the area. As I walked closer to the graves, a chill ran down my spine. (gasps) Something was present. (gasps) Spooky. Dun, dun, dun. I pointed my infrared camera at the graves and the batteries began to die, but I caught a shadow. At least, it started as a shadow. Slowly, it started to take form. Standing behind a gravestone was a woman. I should say the upper half of a woman. Her hair was in a bun, and she wore a gown that was at least 100 years old. It looked like it had billowing sleeves and a white doily collar. When I lowered my camera to see with my own eyes, there was nothing, just the woods behind the cemetery. As I raised my camera again to see the infrared range, she was still there. I clicked and took a picture. She looked at me, but she seemed peaceful. A head appeared at her waist level, the bottom of her apparition. It looked like a little boy. They soon faded away, and the batteries and my camera gained their charge again. The encounter left me stunned. I had no idea what to do with this evidence. Do I put it on MySpace? What year is it, Jake? Sorry. Do I put it on MySpace, Friendster? <laughs> or Flickr? Oh my God, what
0: year is this, I don't, Jake? I don't
1: even know. Luckily... My senses came back to me. I was a ghost hunter, and the first people to see the evidence would be the Halversons. The next day, I drove back to their house from my hotel in Platteville to show them the evidence. 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 I didn't have much to show them, just the black and white picture of the female apparition. She looked at it and nodded. Then she asked me to delete it. Mrs. Halverson explained that it was likely her grandmother and one of her uncles. Her grandmother had lost a child in a farm accident. The boy was about six or seven years old when he died. He was buried in that cemetery. They thanked me for coming out and said they would have their pastor come to the house and clear it of spirits. In the end, they wanted to sell the property, but they couldn't sell a haunted house to a new family. I hear they passed away a few years later. As far as I know, there are no ghosts at the Halverson house anymore. Ooh. Spooky. Spooky. Thanks, Jake, for your story.
0: And if you, again, if you have your own story to share, you can send it to us via Instagram at uh, ghoulish tendencies podcast. Uh, You can also hit us up on Twitter at ghoulish tendencies. Or Gabby has an email. I don't remember
1: what it is. It is Gabby, G A B I, (laughs) at ghoulishtendencies.com. And, you know, just find us. It's so easy. It's the Internet, guys. What year is it? Just find us and send us a message. It's really pretty simple. But anywho. Oh, wow. This voice is just getting worse.
0: It's it's Um, getting worse the more you talk. I'm sorry.
1: It's fine. I apologize to the listeners that have to hear this. But we just wanted to get you a new episode this week on time. So we got to do what we got to do. We got to do. So having said that. Uh, I'm going to pass it over to Kim because she is so passionate about this topic. I can't even tell you guys. I'm so excited to hear about it. I've actually left myself mostly in the dark. I know a little bit about it, but this is a really interesting story that not a lot of people have heard about. Kim, what are we talking about today?
0: Tonight, we're going to be talking about Jake Bird. On October 3rd of 1947, Jake Bird broke into the home of Bertha Clut. 52 and her daughter 17 year old beverly clut that was very early in the morning and there's some different accounts here uh most of the accounts i read said that he took his shoes off so he could better move around but a few of the accounts i read said that he was shoeless and that was part of why he was robbing them he wanted to buy shoes
1: you know some people have fetishes
0: well he didn't have any shoes (laughs)
1: Maybe he had a shoe fetish,
0: (laughs) and that's why he wanted shoes. And that's why he wanted shoes, or he had no shoes, and that's why he wanted shoes. But he he, he had no shoes as he was moving around. Uh, He grabbed an axe that he found in the shed. Now, he would later say he was there simply to rob them. He wanted money. The door was unlocked. God bless the 40s. He snuck into the house. He went into Bertha's room and said he took $1.50 from her purse. And then he said Bertha had seen him and she started screaming. Her screams would bring her daughter, Beverly, down into the kitchen. And these would be the last sounds either Beverly or Bertha ever made. It's about 2.30 in the morning at this point. Two police officers were responding to reports of screams in this Tacoma neighborhood. Now, as they got closer, they saw a barefoot, shoeless African-American man running from the back door of the home and running through a picket fence. So they, believing this to be suspicious, they pursued. Now, he went over some more fences. Eventually, he got to one that was too high for him to jump over. He stopped. The police got closer cornering him, and he pulled out a jackknife. He attacked the officers. He cut one on the hand, stabbed uh, another in the shoulder. So they subdued him, and they took him to Tacoma General Hospital to receive treatment for his wounds. He had wounds. This is going to come up later. But he was also covered in blood and brain tissue. Ugh. Yeah. Now, the officers returned to the home, where they had seen him leaving from, Beverly and Bertha's home, and they were horrified by what they saw. Uh, The women had been bludgeoned with an axe, hit repeatedly in the head. The axe was left behind at the crime scene. There was evidence to suggest he had attempted to sexually assault
1: Bertha. Oh, no.
0: Her... Yeah, Her body was found in a room It was clad only in her pajama top And it was sprawled on her bed Beverly, her daughter, her head Was caved in Yes. Now the attacker Would be identified as Jake Bird A 45 year old Or 44 His date of birth is a little bit in question A transient uh, And you know honestly Finding details about his early life were Challenging Uh, He was born in Louisiana around the turn of the century, and a lot of the reports I read said Greenwood specifically. Left home around 1920 and was uh, what they would have called then a hobo, a transient. He traveled around, mostly using the rail. Had an extensive criminal record. uh, Rape, assault, robbery, attempted murder. Now, he gave a full confession right from the get-go um his version of events was a little different he said he was there to rob them he said that bertha had woken up and discovered him he said he only wanted her money and that beverly attacked him from behind and he was forced to defend himself against her attack by killing her and bertha with an axe
1: That sounds a little excessive.
0: I know. I'm like, and also I'm sorry, you're forced to defend yourself in their home.
1: And it's like, I I mean, it's two women without any kind of weapons.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, Bertha's 52, Beverly's about 17, Uh, but uh, that was his defense. (laughs) Uh he said that he ran from the police and fought them because he was afraid they would shoot him. That's fair. No, that is completely fair. I was like, no, that, that
1: That's legit. Out. Yeah,
0: That's legit. He was charged in Bertha's death. He was not charged in Beverly's death initially. That's weird, why? Actually, that was a common tactic at the time. Uh, if you charge someone with one death and they are somehow found innocent, Oh, and yeah.
1: Then you can so charge that, them with the other death, right?
0: Yeah, that's a little—that's a little safety card because uh, you still have you still have Beverly's in the pocket. So if for some reason he's acquitted of Bertha's. You can try again with Beverly.
1: That's so interesting.
0: Uh, they did that a lot back then. Um, in fact, you saw that uh, looking at someone like Ted Bundy, he was actually only charged in a handful of the deaths, and they did them one by one, partially because it was like, well, if one doesn't stick, we've got. Craps and Seventy-five more. Tried-
1: million others.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, so he was charged on October thirty-first of nineteen forty-seven. He pled not guilty. Trial was scheduled for. I love this. The trial was scheduled for November fourteenth of nineteen forty-seven. Huh. We we talk about the the speedy trial. That actually meant something in the 1940s. That does not mean a whole lot now. If, if you murder someone now and you're charged, it's going to be a couple of years probably. <laughs> uh, they struggled selecting a jury. There was doubt as to whether or not a black man could receive a fair and unbiased trial that they could find people who could be impartial. And that, that was a very legit concern. Uh, but they were able to get a jury together. And the, the trial went quick it was about a day and a half of testimony prosecutors wanted to prove the death was premeditated because in Mm. doing so they could ask for the death penalty they had him leaving the scene fleeing the scene he was covered in blood and brain tissue that's a hard one to justify
1: i mean just the blood in itself like
0: But the the visual, anytime someone, even saying the word brain tissue, we all have a response to that.
1: It makes you kind of sound like a hungry zombie. It
0: does. No, that's a a good good way to put it. Uh, His bloody fingerprints are still on the ax, and they had his confession.
1: I mean, that's the biggest thing, right?
0: That's the biggest thing. However, uh, the defense argued the confession was gotten under duress. Oh. And there was something to that. Uh, Tacoma police officer John Hickey, who was one of the officers there at the scene, admitted on the stand that he beat Jake Bird. Oh, no. In fact, he said this is a quote. I regret to say that I lost my temper after returning from the Clut home and viewing the terribly hacked bodies of the two women. I had asked Bird, as we sat in the patrol wagon, why he murdered the two women. He said he didn't do it. I asked him who did it then, and he said it was Leroy. Who's Leroy? I asked him. Oh, another Negro around town, Bird replied. You're lying, I replied, and he looked at me with a smug and insolent look. I know I shouldn't have done it, but I hit him in the jaw with my fist, knocking him to the front of the patrol wagon. Then I struck him a number of times with my nightstick until he said, don't kill me.
1: Oh, my God.
0: That brought me to my senses. And we took him to the hospital where a nurse said he wasn't badly hurt. So remember, I said they'd taken him to the hospital. The
1: injuries.
0: That's why. He had injuries of his own because the police attacked him.
1: Oh, jeez.
0: Yeah. Now, despite the fact that he had been beaten by the police, the confession did go into the record. The jury deliberated for 35 minutes and found him guilty. He was sentenced to the gallows at Walla Walla State Penitentiary, which is the only place in the state of Washington where uh, executions could take place. His execution date was set for January 16th of 1948. So this is, again, this is moving at a clip. Now, his attorney, a man named J.W. Selden he said that he'd done everything he could and wouldn't be appealing and he was quoted as saying and this is his attorney i want to stress it was his attorney i feel whenever any man 45 years old gets an idea that no lives are safe to anyone except his own that man is a detriment to society and should be obliterated
1: oh my god so dramatic
0: yeah, yeah I, it's one of the things I do say I love about some of these historical cases, as today they sound so dramatic.
1: I feel like they were just more artful in the word choices.
0: <laughs> well, in that they thought about their word choices.
1: Obliterated. <laughs> obliterated.
0: That's a great word. Obliterated.
1: It is. Underused.
0: So the the judge then asks Jake Bird, do you have any comments? And let me tell you, Jake Bird had some comments.
1: Oh, what did Jake Bird have to say?
0: Apparently he had about 20 minutes worth of comments. Oh, Uh, and he, he did say, and, and, and this is, uh, fair. I was not given no chance to defend myself. My own lawyers just asked you to hang me. Oh, he, he has a point.
1: Yeah, that's valid.
0: So he talked a lot longer. He talked for a very long time and then he ended it with all of you who had anything to do with my case will be punished. I am putting the Jake Bird hex on you. Mark my words, you will die before I do.
1: Ooh, dun, dun,
0: dun. And this would become known as the Jake Bird hex. And part of why I find this utterly fascinating is that when you start to research this case, the vast majority of the things that come up about Jake Bird have to do with his hex.
1: Hmm, that's so interesting.
0: It's really interesting, particularly because... This is really only the very start of the story.
1: Oh, shucks.
0: So in regards to the Jake Bird hex, (laughs) there was something to it because within a year, six of the people involved with the trial had died.
1: Wait, hold on. How did they die? That's a lot of people.
0: It's a lot of people. The judge, uh, Judge Edward D. Hodge, had died. He died of a heart attack. Now, he was said to be in excellent health, but he was an older man. I, he was in his – I have the ages for a lot of these people. I don't have his age. But he was, he was over 50, I believe. The sheriff, Joseph Karpik, who had uh, helped in the arrest and obtaining a confession, he died of a heart attack. Again, he was 46. The next person that died, uh, he was a court clerk. His name was Ray Scott. He'd filed transcripts of the Bird case and had handled some of the appeal papers. He was, again, by all reports, very healthy, and then had a heart attack. Three for three. Three for three. Our fourth contestant on the Jake Bird Hex, sixty-nine years old, the court reporter George Harrigan, died of, ladies and gentlemen, say it with me, a, a
1: heart, heart attack. attack. <laughs>
0: We are nerds. <laughs> uh, the Tacoma Detective Lieutenant Sherman Lyons, who had questioned Jake Bird after the murder, he died of a heart attack. Heart attack. Heart attack.
1: Wow, and that's then, crazy.
0: And then J.W. Selden, he's a defense attorney who had said, "You know, we should obliterate them." Who had said, this is another quote, my heart does not beat with sympathy for this man who fixes his life is more important than that of others, died at the age of 76. So that was maybe I mean, less he's, he's an old dude. Yeah, that one, that one, that one wasn't quite a shock. Wait,
1: but was he a heart attack too?
0: Yeah, so yes, he died of a heart attack.
1: <laughs> That's so were... ridiculous.
0: <laughs> so, okay, I know. It just gets weirder because according to a bunch of the journalists, uh, He was, Jake Bird was said to put a hex on a bunch of his prison enemies. And allegedly, again, this was one that was kind of hard to substantiate, but allegedly about half a dozen of his prison enemies died. I honestly could not figure out if this was urban legend or if this was true. Hmm. It was reported every so often in a few of the papers I read, but there was never any names given to back it up. So I kind of lean towards the legend growing. Um, there was a guard at Walla Walla State Penitentiary who died of pneumonia. And I feel like, at this point, uh, Arthur Stewart was the guard's name. At this point, I think we're kind of stretching it to say that that was part of the hex. But it, it's still, it, it is spooky. <laughs>
1: It's like anyone who was remotely close the five-mile radius of Jake Bird who died is relevant to the Jake Bird hex but,
0: but That's what people start to do I mean you look at it with like the the King Tut curse or whatever yeah. and the exorcist and poltergeist You get something in your head. We're very open to suggestion Anyway, as I said, this is really only the start of the story on December 7th of 1947 Jake Bird was taken from uh, the Tacoma jail he'd been staying in to Walla Walla State Penitentiary to await his execution in about a month. And all of a sudden, he starts talking. In fact, he was quoted as saying, a man can only die once, and I want to die with a clear conscience.
1: Well, that's ominous.
0: He starts confessing. Oh, no. Dozens and dozens of murders he is said to have committed over the last 20 plus. On January 6th of 1948, the prosecutor and the detective went to listen to his confession, hoping for reprieve. Jake Bird starts dangling more details. So they ultimately granted him a 60-day stay of execution because what they found is that when they started looking into the things he was saying, it was not just talk. They now had he, evidence. Evidence. He confessed to 44 deaths. What? That's so many. Of those 44, 11 were substantiated to the point where authorities actually closed the case. Oh, my God. Crime after crime was unveiled. And... What's what's really interesting to me, I have to say, when I started digging into this is how hard it was to find information on a lot of these other cases, because it's it's insane. This is a guy who, who butchered two women with an ax, put a hex on people and then starts confessing to dozens of murders. Why do we not know about him the same way we know about Ted Bundy? gary ridgeway jeffrey dahmer
1: i mean all the people that you listed are white men that uh. are like middle class that no one would suspect yeah. and i think that there's there's that aspect of it right
0: well and and as we'll get into as i start talking about some of these other attacks i think when we we think about our serial killers we kind of want to think about them in the same package and yet They are a vast array of of motivations and and types. Right. So his first kill, he said, took place in L.A. in 1923. He said he killed an unknown grocer around Central Avenue during a robbery. Uh, He never knew the man's identity, and this is one that they were never able to narrow down. To be fair, 1923, a man being killed in a robbery, that could probably be a lot of different cases. Sure. Now, in July of 1928, Jake was traveling the rails. Uh, he met up with a man named Gordon. I'm going to mispronounce this last name. Geiger? And, oh, I don't know. This name's pretty cool, too. James Berwald. Berwald. Say it with me now. Berwald.
1: Berwald hardly knew her. I'm just kidding. That's so dumb. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> anyway, uh, he's traveling the rails. Met these two guys. The train stopped suddenly in Ashland, Nebraska, and a rail agent came into the car where they were riding, and he told them, "Like you know, get out." <laughs> they started fighting, and Burwald ran away. Bird was struck several times, and uh, Gygor was forcibly thrown from the rail car. And he fell between two cars. Oh, no. And the train started oh, again.
1: Oh, no. He was a bit of a mess then.
0: He, huh? Oh, he was more than that. Uh, his right leg and left hand were crushed. Oh. He was mm-hmm. rushed to a hospital in nearby Omaha. Uh, a medical student offered him a blood transfusion, and then he passed away on the operating table. Yeesh. So Jake Bird, in a strange showing of, I guess, like transient solidarity, he wanted to see justice done. So he said he'd remain in the area to testify in court against this rail agent. So they were like, all right, well, we can offer you free lodging at the jail in okay, this name, this is this is name of the week. Wahoo, Nebraska. Woohoo. Wahoo. Uh, He declined, saying it was too hot. Wait, what? (laughs) It was July. It was July. And do you really think they had air conditioning in 1928? (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. Uh, He chose instead to settle in Omaha nearby and said he was going to seek employment. Well, he was seeking something. Employment does not seem to be one of those
1: things. Uh Uh-oh. He was seeking moida.
0: seeking some moida. So November... 18th of 1928, J.W. Blackman, age 74, was discovered by his son. And his son initially thought that his father was asleep because he was covered with a blanket. But after some time had passed and J.W. had not moved, he grew concerned. He lifted the blanket. He found his father covered in blood, oh, dead.
1: No. Oh, no.
0: His father had been bludgeoned with an axe, apparently while still asleep, and the axe would be found nearby.
1: I see a pattern.
0: Yeah, this man does love his axes and bludgeoning. Uh, On November 19th, Waldo Resso was heading home from work. He lived with his wife, Gertrude, their two children, Uh, two very young children. They were three years old and nine months old. And Gertrude's sister, Credia, it's another name that I I have to say, some of these names I have had a little trouble with, Uh, C-R-E-D-I-A, Credia, Credia.
1: Tomato, tomato.
0: Uh, he got home. He found his wife murdered. His sister-in-law murdered. Oh, they'd been no. Be- they'd been beaten. Gertrude appeared to have been strangled as well. Uh, he frantically started looking for his children. He found them miraculously unharmed. But the baby, the nine-month-old baby, had a bloody handprint on his face.
1: Wait, the baby was dead, too?
0: You no, know, baby was alive. He just had a bloody handprint on his face as though somebody had put their hand on the baby's face.
1: Oh, my God. That's so messed up. Yeah. Did he, like, try to grab the baby by the face with, like, it, a bloody hand? Didn't look malicious. In fact, there's been more than
0: one case he has been attributed to where there have been children mostly infants left alive and so almost i mean it could have almost been tender just you know that's really messed up
1: i mean to like all of it's su- pretty messed up
0: <laughs> like if he's trying to sue the baby stop it from crying and he, his hands are covered in blood because he just murdered two people Ugh. now the the uh, county attorney at the time county attorney beal he was quoted as saying it is without question the foulest murder i have ever come in contact with in my 10 years as prosecutor in Douglas county damn now november 20th so you see a little a little pattern because we have the 18th 19th and now the 20th mr and mrs stribling were attacked about 3 a.m. mr stribling suffered skull fractures from being struck and he was near death. Mrs. Stribbling was also struck in the face. But did not have quite as severe. Injuries. And reportedly. She begged the attacker for an hour. To spare her one year old child. Oh man. She would be taken with him. Uh, there's some different accounts. Some of them say he carried her. Some say he forced her to walk. Eventually however. He released her. She gave. A rather different description, but ultimately ID'd Jake Bird saying that's the man and then going into hysterics. One of the things I kind of found really interesting when I was researching this, he didn't have a huge problem copping to a lot of crimes. This was one he always maintained he never did. And there was a paper, uh, the paper was the Afro-American, and it implied that Jake Bird could have been framed in the attack of the Striblings for his testimony against the man who had thrown Gregor from the train. Because there were witnesses who said he spent the night, that night, November 20th, gambling with friends. In fact, 20 of them testified that they were all together. His landlady even testified on his behalf. But Mrs. Stribling said... Before God and man, Jake Bird is the man who attacked me.
1: So he basically had an alibi, but they disregarded it.
0: Correct. However, he does not have the alibi for those other murders.
1: I mean, there's like a, a ton of others, so it doesn't really make that big of a difference, right? It,
0: it is a little bit of like, yeah. Uh, we may have falsely convicted you in these attacks. However, you've still killed a crap ton of people.
1: So does it really matter? Does it
0: matter? I mean, it does. It does. Yeah.
1: Because
0: then somebody like, else, well,
1: you know. But
0: but yeah, I. It is legit. It is a legit criticism because the idea that they didn't know. That he'd done these other attacks. Oh, that's
1: true. So,
0: so it, the idea is yeah. that if they were deliberately framing him for speaking out against this brutality from a, a rail worker, that's messed up. That is messed up. And and you can't say throughout this case that race never plays into how of he was course. treated.
1: It's also with the context of when all this was happening, right? And the type of racism that was going on during that time.
0: Oh, definitely. So Mr. Stribling did survive his injuries. Years later, uh, in fact, it was a February 11th, 1959 issue of the Oakland Tribune, where I got a lot of this information from, he would shoot his wife, oh great Mary, in the early hours of the morning while she was sleeping, and then turned the gun on himself. She was not killed. She woke about 9 a.m., found her husband dead, realized she was also injured, phoned her doctor... <laughs> Wait, what? (laughs) She phoned her doctor and then collapsed. She was in surgery for hours, but she survived. There are those, and we'll talk more about this when we get to the paranormal portion of the podcast, who attribute this as being part of the curse. It happened decades, decades after uh, the initial attack, and about a decade after Jake Bird put his hex and they were having financial problems. And that's what some attribute to why he did what he did. Jake Bird would be charged and sentenced to 30 years in prison, but was released in 1941 after serving 12 years for good behavior. Again, he wasn't paroled, but he had been a model prisoner. So let's jump ahead a little bit. On September 22nd of 1942, Someone entered the Corporal House in South Bend, Indiana in the middle of the night and using a pipe attacked John Corporal, age 65, his wife Stella, age 62, and their 18-year-old son, Ernest, as they slept. Oh, man. And this was was really big news at the time in, in South Bend because Ernest was a football star at the South Bend Central Catholic High School and known to be quite popular. Their bodies were found the next day. A broken pipe with blood stains was found in the basement. They kind of struggled, though, putting together a coherent investigation because a large number of police officers and others were allowed to just walk through the house and the crime scene.
1: Like just willy-nilly?
0: Willy-nilly. There was no control over it. Oh my, why? It was 1942. So? No. no. So that contaminated the crime scene. Uh, Jake Bird would later confess to this crime. He said it happened during a bungled burglary.
1: Bungled. What bungled. does bungled mean exactly? Messed up. A
0: a burglary that did not
1: work. It that was sounds like a bunglery. <laughs> eh? God. Eh? No. <laughs> I've been doing too many puns lately. Uh, now he would,
0: in his confession, he said he only killed the son, and then another man. Who was with him an
1: accomplice killed the parents
0: this was a really common thing for him to say though like well i did part of the crime but there was other people around Right.
1: like whatever happened to leroy like who was that exactly and
0: and this is not the only time he uses that defense that well i was involved but it wasn't just me
1: that seems so strange to like admit fault yeah and to part- also blame someone else like you would think if right. you're gonna like include another person you would just put all the blame on the other person and not also admit fault to it
0: one would imagine
1: but clearly his cheese had slid off his cracker
0: (laughs) exactly uh and he gave enough details in the case that they said okay it's closed jake bird did it and now i had to do a lot of digging to get some of these next details this is not information that is super readily available got it um He admitted to killing a man, a white man, that he described as a fat little man, (laughs) cleft chin, wearing glasses, well-dressed, and 35 to 40 years of age. He said he killed him in Chicago uh, somewhere January 3rd or 4th of 1942, that he weighed the body down and dumped it in Lake Michigan. He also said he killed a woman on a bridge and dumped her in Lake Michigan, which is interesting to me partially because this doesn't seem to fit – as much of his mo he doesn't talk a whole lot like he likes to break and enter and bludgeon right um but uh, since most of his crimes are financially motivated to some extent uh you know sometimes you have to dump bodies into the
1: lake you do what you gotta do
0: do what you gotta do he confessed to being a part of the murders of lillian galvin and her maid edna siblinski on october 22nd of 1942 this was a big big crime when it happened and all of these murders I feel like are whole other rabbit holes we could go down and do episodes on but but this is one that was a really big deal when it happened now he said he was a part of these murders but he claimed he was just the lookout so we're back to that I was involved but he confessed to murdering uh a man named James or Jack I saw his name listed as both James or Jack Winfield however there seems to be a lot about this murder that does not fit and it is very possible this is one like the authorities didn't put a whole lot of stock in him confessing to this one specifically he said he killed a man of about 40 and a woman who was about 25 shortly after he got to cleveland he disposed of their bodies in the bull run river he also said he killed a man with a brick in the alley of Little Harlem, which from my research seems to have been a club in Cleveland.
1: Wait, like killed with a club or at a club?
0: At a, The alleyway of a club. So Little Harlem was a club in Cleveland, oh, okay. and he killed this man in the alleyway of this club using a brick. He confessed to murdering Ada Fulkerson, age 36, on June 24th of 1942 in Highland Park, Illinois. He dragged her uh, blocks, he choked her, and then beat her with a rock. In September of 1942, he said he killed a man in Hell's Kitchen, New York. On October 2nd of 1947, the body of 81-year-old Marie Manners was found in her Pueblo, colorado home now at the time her body was found they believed she'd been dead several days she was clad in her nightgown she was found in the dining room in a pool of blood with a deep cut on her head there were signs that her body had been dragged around the house and her purse was found in a pan of water in the sink what? however they would initially rule the death accidental uh, authorities thinking she'd probably fallen and struck her head. Cause you know, old, <laughs> but Jake bird had her on his list of victims that he confessed to killing. And again, he'd broken in trying to rob
1: her. Did he know who these people were? And did he like find out that they had money and stuff like that before he went in and robbed people? Or did he just like arbitrarily go in and rob people?
0: For the most part, it seems arbitrary. Uh, if we look back to the beginning with Bertha and Beverly, I think a big part of that was the door was unlocked.
1: So maybe he just went to places that he could have easy access to.
0: Exactly. And Got it. he said the only reason he ended up killing them was because they woke up. And that does seem to be a thread in a number of these. But then you look at the, like, J.W. Blackman, who had been asleep and he decided to bludgeon him anyway. So... He's an, Jake Bird's an interesting case because you've got the financial motivation, but this is not a man who doesn't – like it's not just financial. You, you enjoy it a little bit if you keep doing it this much.
1: Yeah, like I feel like there's some like mentally unstable
0: oh, aspects definitely.
1: of this dude.
0: Definitely. So uh, he confessed to killing an unnamed man on October 6th of 1947 in Ogden, Utah. I actually wonder if this could have been a man named Lee Walker. Lee Walker was killed in his sleep on October 4th in Ogden, Utah. Uh, Walker was struck several times with an ax and stabbed. Hmm. It is also though possible that Lee Walker is a separate person. Again, as we saw, he does like to do night after night attacks. He confessed to three killings that he described as too painful to discuss in Wisconsin, New Jersey, and Illinois. He would admit to killing eight-year-old Harvey Boyd. Oh, no. Well, but again, this one is one that is, is probably a lie, and here's why. Harvey Boyd disappeared on July 1st of 1928. His body was found about a month later on August 2nd. This was Omaha, so yes, in terms of a timeline, it does match where he was, but a man named Clarence Lucart was arrested for the murder. Jake Bird had served time with him and was apparently friends with him, and there was a lot of evidence against Clarence Lucart. This is a whole other case to go down the rabbit hole for, because there are some really interesting details to it, Uh, and Clarence Lucart had confessed. So... It is commonly believed that he was just trying to cover for his friend at that point. I mean, he has nothing to lose. Right. He's going. To, he's on death row. Yeah, sure. Let's add this eight-year-old into the mix. I killed him. Maybe my friend will get out of jail.
1: And so, like, at this point, he just didn't care.
0: Yeah. He's just confessing. <laughs> so, <clears throat> even though he confessed to dozens and dozens of murders, there's 11 that were able to be closed based on the information he gave. And obviously, again, some of what he was saying was not true, which did not help when they were kind of trying to dig through and figure out what was true and what wasn't. Right. He continued to appeal. And law enforcement in other states, they were begging the state of Washington to do another stay of execution. In fact, there was a telegram that was sent from the governor of Illinois on behalf of the police chief in Evanston. And the telegram said, I urge you to stay the execution of Jake Byrd to permit investigation of his confessions of the murder of two Evanston women. They did not care. They moved forward with his execution. And what's really funny? Funny to me is I found a newspaper. It was the Lansing State Journal from Lansing, Michigan, and it, it actually talked about how successful he was. In fact, the, the quote is, Jake Bird's success and delaying his punishment will be deplored by some as evidence of the slowness at which the wheels of justice sometimes turn.
1: I mean, amen. That still happens now. Right, but but what we're talking about is is delaying of
0: a couple months, not decades. Oh uh, well, then that's like nothing. By today's standards, it's nothing, but it shows you how much has changed. Like this is this is 1947, 1948. At that time, this level of a delay was considered extreme.
1: That's so crazy.
0: Where now, once someone's convicted, you're like, okay, maybe in the next 10 to 20 years they will actually make it to execution. Like death row. Yeah. So July 14th of 1949, he ate his last meal. He wrote down his last remarks. Uh, He was brought before 125 witnesses. Reportedly, as a clergyman was reading his last remarks, the lever was pulled, dropping him down five feet to his death. He was pronounced dead 14 minutes later this case never got a lot of national attention outside of the hex that is probably what most people know in regards to this case now let's talk ghosts
1: spooky
0: spooky spooky but also a little eye-rolly
1: because uh, I am, they're always eye-rolly and i I'm so excited to hear what you have to say about this. I cannot wait.
0: (laughs) You can't wait because we talked about this ahead of time. and You know what I'm going to be doing. I'm
1: so excited.
0: (laughs) All right. To start off, the jail cell in Tacoma where Jake Byrd was kept, it is said to be haunted still. Now, this is not Walla Walla State Penitentiary where he was ultimately executed. This was the jail cell he was held in uh, during his trial for Bertha and Beverly. A spot called Pacific Brewing and Malting had been in the space, and I I actually reached out to them. And they are currently no longer in the space, but I asked them if they'd experienced anything. And they responded with, uh, well, we've definitely experienced some unexplained phenomena, mostly lights turning on and off and objects that moved when we weren't looking. Jail cells connect the brewery to Old City Hall, so there is a ghost. It is certainly possible that it is the spirit of a former prisoner.
1: Wait, but why would he haunt that jail versus where he was put to death? Keep that
0: question in mind for yourself. Because there is another prison supposedly haunted by Jake Bird.
1: Wait, can he be in multiple places all at once? If Ghost Adventures is to be believed. (laughs) Oh, here it is. I'm so excited. I can't wait.
0: I'm, I'm going to try to restrain myself a little bit. Hey, um, guys,
1: what, I have to just give a premise. Kim hates ghost adventures more than like, oh, she hates a lot of things. But she I, really hates ghost adventures so much. My ex-husband. <laughs> there you go Kim hates ghost adventures more than her ex-husband
0: I'm not a fan of ghost adventures and
1: the reason I'm not a fan of ghost adventures
0: uh, well we're gonna go into a little bit it's partly because of the tactics and what they're using for this so they did an episode on Jake Bird. the prison they investigated was the Iowa jail that he was in the the jail in Iowa
1: okay yeah cool
0: so like for attacking the striplings not not the murder cases. This was like the 20s and the 30s. Not even the last jail he was in or the second to last jail he was in or I think even the third to last jail he was in.
1: Because did they mention how many jails he went to? No, of course not. Why would they? Uh, you know, to make themselves sound more relevant. So, less relevant.
0: They did an episode because Jake Bird's spirit supposedly haunts this jail. and And this kind of brings me back to a fundamental problem I have with attaching an identity to a lot of locations. Because at this point, we have Jake Bird in a couple of different spots. Right. Now, going in, they did get some strange EMF activity. And I I don't want to say that this jail is not haunted. It is a jail. Jails are often
1: haunted. It's like a hospital.
0: It's like a hospital. It's anywhere that's had large streams of people coming through. Hotels,
1: hospitals, what have you.
0: theaters. Right. You got a lot of people coming through. You have a lot of energy. You have a lot of activity. That, fine. But I I feel like it is a stretch to automatically assume that the haunting we are experiencing is one notorious prisoner.
1: Right. How do you know? Exactly.
0: So, (sighs) EMF activity, fine. Then they start using a spirit box.
1: Oh, no.
0: And for those of you who are not familiar with spirit boxes, a spirit box or a ghost box, I mean, it's a device that's used to contact spirits, but it's, it, it tries to contact them through radio frequencies. So you can pick up words, phrases, sentences using radio frequencies. I'm hoping we're all seeing why this is not a controlled experiment.
1: Because when you hear radio frequencies, it could be words and bits of, like, conversations that are happening on the actual radio and not necessarily a ghost, right? Anything
0: else that's being
1: transmitted via
0: the same radio frequency.
1: So you can't whittle down, is this paranormal or is this a radio wave? There's no way to decipher that, right? No. Okay. Just Uh, to clear the air with listeners, I just think that there's a lot of misconception with ghost boxes in general.
0: So it is possible they lost me around this point and i i may have started uh yelling things and laughing a lot
1: and um, posting angry posts on facebook that i commented to
0: there were one or two angry posts to facebook mostly because i was <laughs> resenting that i was having to watch this episode but i <laughs> my due diligence when
1: i research we appreciate you kim
0: so like they have a mannequin or I don't something know. I mean, it looked like a mannequin to me it was dark i don't know there was night vision it was a ghost. It was a ghost, and they're they're talking to it. It's like holding an axe, oh, no. and they're using a spirit box, and they're like trying to antagonize it, and being like, "Why'd you do it? And you did a hex, and you murdered people." And I, it was, I, listen, like he talked about the Striblings, and and he talked about the shootings, and he's like, "You made him kill himself and shoot his wife," and it was part of the hex. And I, I just lost it at that point. I was laughing a lot. And going back to the Striblings, is it possible that that Mr. Stribling's attack on his wife, not even years, decades later, were somehow influenced by his early attack? Yeah, he could have sustained brain damage. He could have had his personality affected. He could have been depressed. He could have had PTSD. Is that a hex? No. That's what happens to people who've suffered something excruciatingly traumatic. Right. And I feel like... You are diminishing that when you start saying, what, what is a tragedy? Like, this is a man who was brutally attacked and then later went on to shoot his wife and kill himself. And by blaming it on a hex, and maybe this is me being Scully.
1: No, I think it's it's legit, though, because – I and this kind of goes back to even – it's relevant to our last episode, too, like where there's people that believe a story versus, like, truth – or yes. when they didn't know context like we know context now based on scientific developments, you know, like or how I, I think the biggest thing is PTSD was only discovered when, you know what I mean? And like yeah. labeled as PTSD when and no one really knew why it was a thing or why people acted a certain way. Yeah. But to label it as a hex was the easiest label mm-hmm. to put on it. But it's
0: it's the fact that this was a, rec- a fairly recently done episode, I believe, uh, and and you can find the full listings of oh, our, well, our sources yeah. obviously on our website right. uh, in our episode notes. But and and go and watch the episode. I just feel like we are way past the point where we should be saying this kind of thing. Oh, for sure. And, and this is why, for those of you at home that wonder why I don't have a lot of respect for ghost adventures, because I, I try in general to be respectful of people's beliefs. I may not believe in ghosts or spirit boxes, but if you do, fair enough. However, this kind of attitude is damaging. For sure. I, think it's, I think it's damaging and I think it diminishes the real story and the truth and the facts and the evidence.
1: Do you know what episode it was? Ghost adventure, Serial Killer Spirits,
0: Season 19, Episode 3.
1: Wasn't it about a different killer?
0: Well, they did a series. This is why it's Episode 3 of... They did one for Bundy. They did one for...
1: They did one for Gacy, didn't they?
0: Gacy, I think, and then they did one for Jake Bird. So this was the third in the series of... Uh, serial killer haunted spaces if there was more after i turned it off because i i saw what I to see and as soon as it was possible for me to turn it off i did um like okay. he put on a gas
1: mask gabby he put on a I gas know. mask oh no it's like a ventilator he like always wears it because he has a hard time breathing
0: he said the air was getting sucked out of the room and then i think i blacked out from rage so i i don't know i don't know what happened after that uh, <laughs> I, as soon as the gas mask or whatever that, whatever it is, as you can tell, I don't watch the show regularly.
1: Kim does not care.
0: I, there's and I, um, I don't care. There we go. That's a better way to say it. Um, I, I just get a little, I want to find it funny. But because some people take it seriously, it's hard for me to find it funny.
1: Right. And we know that these shows really do things for entertainment purposes more than anything. So, you know, take it for entertainment source that they reference maybe true things that have happened, but you know it's going to be elaborated upon and it may not be accurate. And the way that they depict it can be tasteful or distasteful. Usually it's the latter.
0: And, and Kim tends to have strong feelings about things. If I mean, we you know that. <laughs> I know. If you haven't figured that out yet, oh, you're in for a bumpy ride as we keep going with our next couple cases. <laughs> uh, but that is the story of Jake Bird, the Jake Bird hex, some of his ghost stories. And what I find to be a, a, a really interesting case, and I realize I say this a lot, But I am genuinely surprised that he is not more familiar to people.
1: Well, hopefully more people will listen to this episode, and then they will become more familiarized with Jake Bird. And for those of you that like our podcast and have been enjoying it, thank you so much for listening. Um, Please tell your friends about it. Like, just tell people. I feel like word of mouth is the best way to share things and you know you're going to trust someone's advice about what to listen to if they're a friend of yours than a random person on the internet so share the love
0: <laughs> and the, the lovely reviews we've had some really oh lovely gosh, reviews so being nice. left by people lately and we read them we appreciate them so much they make our days when we see them
1: they totally do and anytime you you guys give us a review we try to repost it on our instagram so that way everybody can see the reviews um and acknowledge you because just as you know important as it is for you guys to acknowledge us we want to acknowledge you too so thank you for that um we want to thank Angry Droid, who apparently it sounds like Kim. Kim great is an angry name. droid too. For you know enjoying our podcast and giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, as well as it reaches out. <laughs> Don't know who that is, but awesome, they fabulous name. <laughs> also gave us a great a great review. Thank you, uh, Brittany Holland. Thank you, Brittany, and uh, Faye Berry. Faye, thank you so much. We appreciate all of you guys for leaving us lovely reviews and five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. So having said that, if you haven't given us a rating on Apple Podcasts, please do it and just give us a little tidbit. Tell us what you like. If you have um, advice or suggestions for things that you want us to talk about, you can always message us. Follow us on Instagram at Ghoulish Tendencies Um uh, You can also message us there. You can also find us on Facebook at Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. For show notes, references, and all episodes, uh, you can visit our website at www.ghoulishtendencies.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Ghoulish Podcast. And if you have any reviews on Twitter, you can also shout us out on there and Kim will repost you. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And please send us your ghost stories like Kim was talking about at the beginning of the episode. You can send them to us at any of the above stated places. But if you'd prefer email, you can email us at Gabby, which is G A B I, at ghoulishtendencies.com. If you haven't subscribed or followed us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Please do. That way you'll know every time we have a new episode, it'll tell you. And it helps us to know how many people are following us. So having said that, thank you for listening. Yay. And stay stay spooky. spooky.